You're listening to The Above the Mug Show, a podcast that highlights people whose passions drive their life. My name is Lucas Spinoza, and I own a coffee shop. Every day I meet dozens of interesting people, and today I sit down with one of them to inspire you to live your life passion forward. What is going on, everybody? It's your friend Lucas Spinoza coming at you from my office inside of the Black Sheep Lounge. You are listening to Above the Mug, a podcast that highlights positive people, and we're here to show you how you can use your passions to live your life passion forward. Now, listen, my friends, it's been a long time. It's been about a month. We took some time off for the holidays. I didn't want my guests to get washed out by the hustle and bustle of all the eating and sleeping and drinking and hanging out with friends and family. So we took a little bit of a break, but we are back in full swing and we have a really special guest. We always do, but particularly special. Um, we have Mark Bacconi. He's the chef owner of Mark Bacconi Culinary Studios. He's the recipient of a multitude of culinary excellence awards, including the CAA Four Diamond Award, correct? Correct. I love it. Featured on a bunch of different Food Network programs, and you're also the chef professor at Canadian Food and Wine Institute. All correct? All correct. Holy yes. moly. What a list. What an impressive guy. Thank you. And I told him I was going to compliment him so I can see, <laughs> see him grinning at me. How are you doing, brother? Great to be here, Lucas. Real, real pleasure. Absolutely. Likewise. Uh, likewise. Um, it's kind of funny because we have already been chatting for probably 15 minutes, excited going back and forth. So it's weird to ask you how you are now, even though I already know. <laughs> yeah. No, great day. Uh, busy day at the college and uh, excited to be here and share some thoughts and wisdom with you. Awesome. So first question that comes to mind for you is... Me being new to this world, I'm, obviously I alluded earlier that I'm a coffee guy, but we've kind of becoming more of a food place. How did food become such a big part of your life? Was there a moment with your family where you decided, hey, you know, I, I love being in the kitchen or was it actually tasting food itself or you decided it was just, you know, part of the process? Sure. Like all Italians, food is an integral part of our well-being. Yeah. You know, it's a, a part of every day, but it's, uh, you know, that meal, that family sort of gathering, sitting around the table is a, is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. But I should preface my, my awareness to food really has a lot to do with uh, my grandparents who emigrated from Sicily way back in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s to, to Canada, and then opened our family business in Nundas, uh, just west of Hamilton, mm-hmm. back in 1915. So uh, fortuitously, I grew up in that sort of food retail, uh, food service establishment where uh, attention to detail, uh, guest relations, uh, quality products was, was very much a, a part of our upbringing. Um, so I always say credit to my parents for teaching some of the fundamentals, but, um, you know, I didn't really want to be like my dad and be in the food retail business. So I, you know, pursued um, academic study at Guelph, but more on the sort of hospitality management side. And uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, it has brought me full circle. It's rather circuitous in a manner that, <laughs> yes. you know, now I'm teaching at the college, the next generation. But, but I've, always, um, uh, I've always been attracted to food. I, I mean, uh, I think back to that sort of cultural connection. Um, but I never went to culinary school. That's not really my focus. But, um, you know, I love food. It shows. Uh, I'm very passionate about our, our area and our region, Niagara specifically. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and very proud to to profess that publicly, uh, locally, and in terms of what I do every day. So I love that. So how long was it before, like after you started cooking professionally before you opened up uh, your studio? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, um, I, I was, uh, I, I kind of came late to, to the actual profession of cooking mm-hmm. in a manner where, uh, you know, I paid my way through university uh, by working at various restaurants up in Guelph. Um, and people kept saying to me, like, you're really good and you should probably be thinking about this. And I'm, I didn't want to cook. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to culinary school, um, but I really wanted to be a doctor. There was something about 
you know, working in the shop when I was a kid and you know, admiration for these people uh, as doctors, lawyers, whatever, that, that sense of profession. But I think also my parents were very much um, adamant that we all got a, a base foundation of education in, in terms of how that could parlay into a, a career. But uh, I think at 30, I said, okay, forget this. Let's go over to Europe and start cooking. See if I can really cut my chops on, you know, surviving European kitchens in, in a way that I did. And so I did. Um, and that was post my father's passing in, in 86 and in a manner that, um, you know, I had a bit of time there at the shop to, to carry on. I did the responsible son thing where, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I'm from a typical large family where we all worked in the shop. But, you know, I was kind of in the food business. And, uh you know, it was it was great, but interestingly enough, my mother kind of in 1990 said, uh, you know, you have to leave now. Uh, I'm coming back to the shop, and I'm bringing my, my daughters with me. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And so when I think back about it from my Nono's days, my dad's days, and that sort of male-oriented, male-initiative sort of business to what was my mom and my sisters, it, it, there's been an interesting pendulum swing there, which I think has been very, very transformative. Um, and, and very insightful relative to what, what we're seeing in terms of the business world. Um, and so the business is still operating today. That was established in 1915. So three of my four sisters own and operate that. Um, and, and it's the quintessential Italian grocery shop. Um, I love it. it. It's pretty powerful. And what my mom really did was bring the sort of sense of what we call um, food-to-go mentality because the way Dundas transitioned from what would have been maybe a suitcase town into a real food town in some respects. Uh, and I think that had a lot to do with people coming into town, the proximity to Master University or Hamilton for that matter. And Toronto's not that far away, all things being equal. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was pretty powerful when you actually were able to source great material and turn it into something pretty powerful. But I went off to Italy, uh, well, actually France first uh, when I was 30 years of age and, and had some really good experiences, some pretty powerful life-changing experiences. Um, another three years in Italy and, and then came back in 1995 um, to be basically was the chef at Vineland Estates. And I love it. It just parlayed into a, a pretty uh, powerful little illustrious career, which I'm very proud of. And you're not even close to done yet. <laughs> well, no, I, I say to a lot of people, I have about 20 years of useful work life left in me. So that's one thing I'm really curious about. As you said, there's, there's two things I don't want to forget. So I'll come back to family business. Uh, but for someone who's young, 30 years of age, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to Europe and see if I can really do this thing. Who do you call? Who, like, who do you talk to to say, hey, I'm a young chef. I think I can do this. I want to work for you. I know the word in the industry is a stage for right. some places, right? Very you do your, basically a, a torturous co-op of, of, uh, in hot kitchens. So yeah. how, how do you make that phone call or how do you make yourself over to Europe? Yeah. Well, I'll be honest and say that I had traveled to France and Italy in my sort of uh, earlier youth days based on the fact that we had family there. Mm-hmm. And, and that was that was important um, to maintain those connections. And and also fortuitously, I was able to speak Italian and, and speak to some degree French that, you know, I would have learned growing up. Um, my older brother, Donald, at the time was living in Europe. So that was a bit of a, if I could call it a home base, that maybe provided an incentive to say, you know, if I get on a plane in Toronto and get off in Paris, at least I know somebody in the vicinity mm-hmm. that, you know, if I needed help, I could... Four-hour train ride and you're over there. Exactly. But, you know, like most young, 
want to be culinarians, they write to all the premier chefs in Europe. And mm -hmm. that's what I did from Canada. Um, and of course, they're all rejection letters, rejection letters. And I still have some of them, which is, is quite awesome. insightful to read them today. But, um, you know, I always wanted to work for Michel Bras in uh, um, uh, the Aubrac region of France. And, and, and to this day, I would still love the thought of thinking I could go there and spend some time in that kitchen. But what became very evident when I was there was it takes someone to know someone who can make a connection. And, you know, today I talk about getting in the red room and speaking of red rooms, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah. sort of say, um, in so many respects, I am as a foreigner end up in Paris and knocking on doors and realizing that, yeah, you don't have a name. They don't know you. You're actually a foreigner and they don't really want to ever, you know, touch you with a 10 foot pole. Mm -hmm. In that respect, what it became very evident was that if I didn't sort of compromise with a certain sense of exchange for room and board, I was never going to get any job. But one job would always lead to another based on my sort of attention to uh, upstart initiative or, or, or taking a certain level of responsibility for a task mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, after three months, if I could say to the chef, listen, I'm looking to move on, where would you recommend I go? You know, one, one basically stage led to another stage. So I was quite lucky in, in France. You know, I was able to work uh, on, a, on a, an incredible beef farm raising Charolais where I birthed many calves in the spring. But it was also very, very uh, demanding physical work. But that job led me to a, a very esteemed restaurant in Cote d'Or. Um, that chef is no longer with us. He took his life based on the fact that, y y you know, the intensity of a starred restaurant, if you don't maintain that, um, it it's pretty serious. But those jobs led to some really powerful jobs. But the real highlight of my sojourn abroad was um, I am working in a little town called Arnais-le-Duc at a restaurant called Chez Camille. Mm -hmm. And... Monsieur Poisson hires me because I'm Canadian and says yes because another Canadian company in Toronto called Butterfield and Robinson stayed there and they paid their bills and so you must be good. And I wrote to Mr. Butterfield saying thank you very much using my brother's home address basically as my base address mm -hmm. writing to him saying your reputation provided me an opportunity to pursue my culinary dreams. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. So thank you very much. Next thing I know, I'm working at Trinom Palace in Versailles, and they're tracking me down via my brother to say that we want this guy working for us, to which I said, I'm happy to work for you as long as you get me into a really good restaurant in Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, because knowing what their business model was about, that provided me an opportunity to eventually get to Arnolfo in Colli Valdelsa. And for me, that experience beyond belief changed my life. Amazing. So... What's the balance between when you're talking about these enormous food icons, these kitchen icons, how do you say to them, where do you get to the point where you're like, I have to follow directions and I have to prove that I'm a good worker to saying, well, here's why I'm different. How do you show that to people? Because I think there's a, a lot of this mentality, at least with young chefs that I've met today, thinking that they have to to the T every single thing. They're basically free, free little culinary slaves for a year or two years, and then they never go anywhere with it. You had the balls to say, listen, I'm coming, but only if you can get me here. And I, I admire the hell out of that. Well, that had probably a little bit to do with my age, given the fact that I was a bit more mature. Mm -hmm. But I would also tell you that I didn't get paid for any of those experiences. Of course, that yeah. was, in some respects, very monastic. Mm -hmm. um, but that taught me a lot about my internal sort of conviction, belief, strength that I could actually get up every day and, and carry on. I will tell you, there, you know, there were many a days where I'm thinking, what the F am I doing here? Like yep. what, you know, I could be in Toronto earning whatever, doing great things. Having said all that, that taught me a lot of inner strength, conviction relative to what I was just saying earlier, where 
do I put my foot in front of every foot every day to keep going and keep moving? I'll never forget this experience being chased out of the, the field by a couple of Charolais bulls, you know, seeing the electric fence approaching, you know, the boots are stuck in the mud. I sail over the electric fence, end up in the stream, and I'm literally crying. And I'm thinking, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is just, like, do I need this? Like, you know, but I can tell you honestly, <clears throat> being chased by a bull is not a fun experience. Mm -hmm. But it does convince you that if this is really what you want to learn, to understand the intricacies of what a farmer deals with. Mm -hmm. But no different than, you know, waking up, you know, in the little attic apartment I was there in central Tuscany, putting my feet on the ground and realizing that the roof had leaked, my knapsack is all wet, and I'm thinking, do I really need to be doing this? But I think if you really love what you do, if you're really passionate about what you do, uh, and the culinary arts is a, is a very, very tenacious um, awe-inspiring, incredibly life-changing experience if you're convicted to say this is what you really want to do. Mm -hmm. But that takes a lot of strength every day to get up and keep doing it over and over again. Our profession as a chef, per se, is solely based on performance. Mm -hmm. And you have to get better every day. I mean, it's something I try to instill in students. But I can tell you part of my success of, of Europe was really predicated on the fact that I understood a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. I got disciplined very early on in my life. And kitchens are fundamentally, you know, they can be pretty militant. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, yes, chef, yes, chef in, in Canada. We might chef. Be, yeah, or we chef, you know. <laughs> um, and, and it's very real. Like, yeah. this is this is real. But I can tell you, uh, Lucas, you know, I was belted across the back of the head by Monsieur Veille at Trianon Palace. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's something that, you know, my dad might have done when I was a little punk. But not when you're 31. Like yeah, you intuitively want to turn that, around right? and belt them. But you realize if you did that, you know, you'd have you'd be ganged up and 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 the likes. But I mean, was it justified? Maybe at the time, rightly or wrongly, absolutely wrong and definitely wrong today. Mm -hmm. But you know, you realize that's not how you're going to manage people. And and what is the approach to managing people? I mean, at the end of the day, you'd like to think that if you train your staff, if you hire the right staff, train them well, that they can execute your your vision and and realistically that's empowering when they get that i mean that's what mm -hmm. i see today at the college with students absolutely and i, I there's definitely th this day and age you can't really justify the the, the physicality in the kitchen but there is something to seeing how far you can push someone in a kitchen because it really is people think of it you know you know you go to a restaurant you have a dinner you go home you pay your 45 50 bucks and you you know you're full you're sitting on the couch watching tv now but that is one of the hardest jobs in the world especially a, a kitchen that cares right yeah. the people that care about what's coming out to the table they want you to have a great experience it's hot it's hard work it's long hours unlike the servers in the front they don't get their 15 or a half hour it's all day uh, and it's not just the eight hours they're open it's four hours before and four hours after uh, and it is just incredibly demanding work and on top of that like you said with, with the farms you're going to farmers markets you're going to the farms you're finding the right beef yeah. you're finding the right dairy you're finding the right vegetables like we have companies in Niagara that just do mushrooms yeah you know and I'm sure you know the company I'm talking about yeah. Uh, and it's just unbelievable to see how much goes into it and that's how I fell in love with food was through coffee was because I took one thing very seriously mm -hmm. we became good at it um, obviously there's some other very talented coffee people in the area but um, you know we started talking to serious culinary people you know like mm -hmm. going to Backhouse going yes. to Gretzky's going to all these different amazing places and they like our stuff yeah. right yeah. and it shows you that they have they source 
one person for mushrooms, one person for greens, yeah. one person for beef, one person for cheese, one person for truffles. It's just unbelievable yeah. how much work and effort goes into making one dish. Yeah. Well, when I, I will tell you this, Lucas. When I came back from Italy uh, to Canada, mm-hmm. and having been out of the country for many years, I really had a, a sense of loss relative to realizing, oh dear, where am I going to find chestnuts? Where am I going to get khaki? Where am I going to get beef? Beef mm-hmm. that I have just, you know, fell in love with because of the uniqueness of what the European products are. Mm-hmm. Having said that, that was also part of the fun of the journey of being a chef because it is a seek and find. It is kind of a, a manifestation of knowing the farmers to be able to encourage them to carry on doing what they do, but also teach that next generation, your apprentices, that this is really important to make that connection. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, um, cooking is a young person's game. You know, whether you're male or female, whatever the case might be, it's a pretty powerful exchange when you learn a skill and can parlay that into a a profession. When that happens, it's very, it's life-changing, which is powerful, so. Yeah, absolutely. I wanna jump back to the second part of that I didn't wanna forget, which is, you know, we, we talked earlier before the mics turned on about me and the bakery and how my dad, you know, what's going to happen when my yep. dad finishes. And uh, you had mentioned something about, you know, after your dad's passing, you know, now you've got your three sisters and your mom and they're taking care of it. What was that like? What, did you have a, a, a moment where you decided that this wasn't you wanted wasn't what you wanted to do? And you did you relay that to your your yeah. family? Because I know for myself, I knew pretty early on. I absolutely love the bakery. Uh, and I love the business, but I'm not a baker. Yeah. And, and I never was. Even when I worked at the bakery, I, I rolled bread and I baked it and I did all that. But my dad stuck me in the front and he said, Sal, you're a better personality than you are a baker. Uh, and so I, I did that. Um, but I remember at 13 or 14, I had that conversation with my dad and I cried. And I said, Dad, you know, I love you and I love this place, but I'm not going to be a baker. Mm-hmm. And he said, OK. And then he thought my brother would do it and until my brother turned 18. He was going to do it. And then, you know, he fell in yeah. love with something else. And. I don't know. My dad's never fully let me know how he feels about that. Like, yeah. I'm sure he was disappointed, but uh, at the same time, we have a very good father and he pushed us, but he also appreciates our own passion. So what was that like for you and your family? Well, we're talking about a very real topic, especially in family business mm-hmm. and possibly an even sensitive topic yep. because succession planning is not necessarily something that you you think about. And, and, and how, do you, how do you talk about that? How do you plan for that? Mm-hmm. But it's a very, very real entity relative to owning a business. I can tell you in our case, um, and I'm not talking out of turn here, but you know, I don't think my parents ever really thought about, you know, my dad passed away relatively young, of cancer, but you know, the thought that I should or we should be thinking about this in manifestation of, you know, what's going to be and who's going to be the next generation. So I, I mean, I think it was for lack of a better term, forced in my direction. My two older brothers were clearly not in the food business or mm-hmm. hospitality business. My older sisters were not in any way, shape, or form connected to the hospitality business. Mm-hmm. So I was the next in line. I'm number five of eight. And so, yeah, I guess it's going to be you. And, and you know, I, I, I resigned. I wrote my resignation letter <laughs> of, in terms of the job I was at and, and started the next day because mm-hmm. literally we buried dad and my mom was saying, you know, who's going to open the store tomorrow? Like it just didn't really, mm-hmm. didn't really pass our minds uh, you know, that this is, this is very real. And so in the passing of my mother, uh, seven years ago, I, I think that was equally a, a bit of a, 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 you know, a crossroad that, you know, this is, this is very real. I did want to sort of diverge ever so gently. The, the aspect of a chef's career has to evolve as well. I mean, 
as I said earlier, it's a young person's game. Um, you know, when you're 45, you're probably not still cooking on the line. You're now mm -hmm. probably managing. Uh, God forbid you move in a different direction. But I, I mean, the one th the aspect that I'm trying to enlighten students is our careers have to evolve. And that was a, a bit of a crossroad for me after leaving Vineland where, okay, why did I choose the academic route versus carrying on in the industry? Um, because you know, I, I am very passionate about the food business, mm -hmm. but I've also got a very broad range within the food business. So, I mean, um, you know, I, I love academics. I love using my brain. I mean, it's my most powerful weapon. I'm mm -hmm. not a big guy. Uh, and, and a matter that says, um, how do I, how do I, you know, take this wealth of knowledge that I've gained over the years and, and put it into the next generation. So I also worked very closely with Niagara College, and that was another plus that, you know, may have been a, 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 an impetus to say, let's carry on and do that. But the, the aspect of, of, of saying, how do, I, how do I evolve my career? How does a business evolve? Um, it's something that we have to think about. Mm -hmm. I own a chunk of land now. You know, I remember my mother saying <laughs> to me many years ago, what are you doing this for? I mean, most of us invariably, if we come from a European background or, or a tradition of what it means to set up a business for the next generation, mm -hmm. uh, that we, we plan on that. But um, you know, um, I'm doing it because I can, I, I love doing what I do, but, um, you know, there's no one after me, which is, is a little bit bizarre, but, um, you know, I'm also very passionate about the region of Niagara. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I could never have carved out the career I've done here. Um, if I didn't have the farmers, um, you know, we see the hashtag all the time, farmers feed cities. Um, you know, and that I think may have started, when sort of the food scene of Niagara started to mm -hmm. evolve. We've had previous chefs, obviously. Emil Rinderlin was was epitomous in Welland for, for his his fine restaurant. One of my colleagues at the college was one of his apprentices. When you when you think about what he did in terms of whom he's taught. Um, but but I think we made the connection to the growers and, and you know that was really a lot of fun for me. Monday's mm -hmm. theory class at the college was all about tasting apples and you know most people know apples but Hopefully my class now knows seven different apples that has different applications from a particular farm in Smithville, mm -hmm. you know, Smerrick's farm that, you know, and I'm encouraging them all go down there, introduce yourself and, you know, pick the right apple for the right application. Um, and, and, and for me, that's very, very powerful. That's mm -hmm. very encouraging. Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned apples. It's kind of funny because I teach a, a coffee class at the shop here, usually a once a month to, to home brewers. Yeah. Uh, I have two courses. There's one that's very, very beginning, like you've never made coffee at home before, or you know, you're a Tassimo kind of person. And then we also have people who make coffee at home and they want to be better tasters. Mm -hmm. And I always use apples as the comparative uh, piece in life because people know apples. Yeah. Uh, and it's we grow a bunch of them in our region. Um, and, and so whenever I, I try to compare it, coffee is a fruit. People forget that, right? Or they don't know it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, there's two coffee seeds, which we call beans, and each cherry grows on a tree. And people think, okay, well, I've got coffee. It's 100% coffee, but what kind of coffee is it? Well, it's coffee, yeah. but it's not, right? And so I always use the example that red delicious is a type of apple and an apple is a type of fruit and fruits are a type of plant, you know, and yeah. go that way. And it's the same thing with coffee, because even when you hear people say a hundred percent Arabica in coffee, people hear that all the time from Tim Hortons, McDonald's. Now it's like saying a hundred percent apple. Yes. That yes. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like what yeah. kind of apple is it? You wouldn't stick uh, a red delicious in a pie. No. You would a granny Smith. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So things like that are important. And so, um, that's a great segue. I wanted to talk about, um, the type 
of quality that we have in our area because I think even in my own young lifetime, short lifetime, there's been a change in the the quality of our produce, um, especially in grocery stores. Farmers, mm-hmm. they have their own uh, challenges, especially the, the smaller farmers. Yep. But when you go to the Welland Market and you pick up, you know, pound of heirloom tomatoes, yep. and then you go to Food Basics and pick up a pound of tomatoes, it's basically just red water. It doesn't mm-hmm. taste like anything. Yeah. And then you have maybe some orange or green or even a blue tomato, yeah. right? Yeah. And you bite into it, and it's like this burst of flavor. It reminds me of when I was a little kid at my Nono and Nona's house pulling a tomato off yeah. the vine. It really, I mean, we've lost so much flavor in produce because of high yields. And how do you think that's affecting the culinary field and restaurants locally? Sure. Well, authenticity in food is a real is a real uh, concern, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, food security is a very, very real concern today. Our forefathers would have planted their own garden because they would have been very self-sustainable. Um, you know, we've got movement of people, we've got uh, transportation being a, a reality, uh, but the other aspect is we've also got climate change, which is reality. Mm-hmm. And the thought that, you know, we could grow, you know, tremendous products and a very broad selection of products here in, in Niagara is, is pretty powerful. We've got an incredible reputation for tender fruits, for example. But the harsh reality is the demand for the quantity of food that we might need it, it supersedes the ability to grow. And we're also in a growing season constraint that has mm-hmm. to be um, you know, looked at in terms of either greenhouses to extend season or the likes. But you know, anything that's grown in the ground is always going to taste better. Mm-hmm. Any meat or fish cooked on the bone is always going to taste better. The reality is people don't know the seasonality of food anymore. Mm-hmm. And because it's been so watered down where you could go into most grocery stores and see cherries out of season. You're going to see cherries right now in the grocery store. Well, they're not growing here in Niagara. And the fact is that I want cherries today allows you the opportunity to buy cherries today. And therefore, you've lost context with what is an authentic cherry taste. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I like to say that what you should be eating right now are apples and pears. Um, and, you know, in the peak of summer, enjoy those beautiful heirloom tomatoes because you've got basil growing in the garden or your little window box, and you've got a really nice olive oil to be able to dress that. And, and when you taste those flavors in combination, that's a pretty authentic experience. And I think equally transformative that says, holy shit, this tastes really amazing. Absolutely. So enjoy it for the month that you can enjoy really good tomatoes. But then your palate should evolve too as you you know enter the fall start embracing other options root vegetables uh, some of the heartier meats uh, whatever the case might be in fact if you've been really good you might have even taken some of those tomatoes and canned them or pureed them or frozen them or dried them to experience something that carries on that season and and moves forward but not many people preserve anymore um you know we're we're still canning tomatoes, but that has a lot to do with culture and, mm-hmm. and our background, but also possibly the demand to say that if I could go down to the cellar and pick up a jar of my pasita, as opposed to going to the grocery store and buying it, um, that's real. That's much, much more important to us. I also think that there's this propensity to uh, what farmers are now realizing that, um, you know, if they can grow heirloom tomatoes, um, there's a bit of cachet there. There's probably some level of money motivation, which is real. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I'm ne- I never barter with farmers ever, ever, ever. And the rationale is if they've grown it, I deserve to pay them based on the price that they, mm-hmm. they charge. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I might not buy them the second time, but it's important that, and I stress this to students all the time, if there's a local grower purporting to grow local products, ensure that they grew it, mm-hmm. because that makes the most sense. If that particular farmer, like the Hastes, for example, here, 
Fenwick, Fontail, Welland Market, uh, you know, vendors, if they grew those apples and they're selling those apples, the shortest distance, that's very, very real. That's authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, paying them X dollars for a basket of apples, I know that 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 revenue supports that family and supports the future of their farm. Absolutely. And think about it this way. People, for some reason, only do this with food and nothing else in life because they talk about the cost of things. Really, a a lot of high quality foods, especially in an area that grows them, like where we are in Niagara, it really isn't that much more expensive. Sometimes it's less or on par. What I hate is like if you were to go to a hotel and mm-hmm. one hotel is a hundred a night, the other one's a hundred and twenty, and the one that's a hundred, you know, the, someone's their cigarette butts outside the the room, or they didn't make the bed, or you know, the toiletries are half used. You'd be like, what the hell? Why didn't we just spend yeah. the extra twenty bucks and go to this hotel? But you don't do that with food. You think, well, this this meal sucked, or this food yeah. sucks, or the you know, how many times can you pick up some green peppers and they not be soft? Yeah, you know, I mean, like yeah. they're soft every time, yeah. uh, you know, avocados, we're importing them. They should not, we should not be having those year round. Like not only is this bad for us, it doesn't taste great. Yeah. It's expensive and it is killing us in the future because we think, yes, it's good right now, but we are destroying the ground in which we grow things in. And this isn't even about climate change. Like you can only grow so fast and so much without destroying the, the ecosystem. Yeah. The same thing's true of coffee. I've, you know, I've done a couple coffee trips myself now and, the farmers, when I went there, they said their number one concern almost every year is is climate change because, you know, I went in the peak of harvest, right? Mm-hmm. So harvest, um, coffee's very similar to tomatoes in that sense where they don't ripen all at the same time, so you have to pick them as they ripen. Yep, yep. So usually, you know, it could be anywhere from two to six times they have to go back up and down the mountains weeks apart to pick these things. Right. And at the end of the harvest, the... the um, plants they picked first are already flowering to produce fruits in the same season. Wow. And what's happening is when they produce fruits, obviously they're no good. They fall off the tree because they're rotting. Um, when they hit the ground, if the farmers don't pick them up, bugs and parasites yeah. come and destroy yeah. the trees. And now that entire farm is no good. So you think about, yes, we want it cheap. We want it right now. Yeah. Uh, it's convenient, but it is absolutely destroying our ability to have something at all, not even just quality, but destroying our ability to have anything from that region again. And I think we're going to put ourselves in that mess uh, faster than we we want if we're not careful of it. Well, there's a perception that that uh, putting value on food has been uh, watered down. Unfortunately, that has a lot to do with uh, mass media, mass marketing, and, and mass production. Mm-hmm. You know, factory farming, unfortunately, uh, to feed the masses. So we're probably being challenged to look at alternative food sources. Uh, I'm sure that's the cachet of of the whole sort of plant-based um, alternative protein sources that that's happening. Um, but that also comes at a cost too. Uh, you know, monocultures are very real. The the need and abundance for wheat and corn and barley is is profound. But um, you know, don't underestimate the humble potato. I mean, uh, you know, as long as you got good soil and a certain relative level of moisture, you could you could do some pretty profound. Uh, things with potatoes for example but that being said um you know it'd be great to re-instill the importance of of eating well um you know as michael poland says you don't need to eat a lot you just need to eat eat quality and, mm. and quality doesn't mean quantity um but um you know the understanding is is that 
you know, we need food, but we don't necessarily place the importance on food the way mm. we once did. And so if, you know, if we're putting shit in, we're going to get shit out. Uh, yeah. You know, no <laughs> pun intended. But, you <laughs> well, know, shit's coming out regardless. So True. So, so you say to yourself, you know, would it make more sense to actually a little bit less of a better quality than, than just simply to buy the bulk because it's inexpensive? Mm. Um, but you know, maybe that's re-education. Maybe that's instilling some of the fundamentals that, um, you know, it's very, very important to enjoy and appreciate value. And there's yeah. something to be said about that. And I, I'd be curious about this as well, because we use it all the time here when we're buying from, from local people, especially. A lot of the time, you really can get things for cheaper because they're not perfect looking. Yes. Uh, and I find that's kind of the grocery store problem, right? They stack beautiful, the exact same color, the exact same size, the exact same density, each tomato one on top of the other. Same thing with cucumbers, same thing with peppers, same thing yeah. with everything, right? Yeah. Even meat, right? I mean, you'll have the, the same size chicken breast. If you've ever looked at a chicken farm, they're not all the same size. Right. Uh, and so what happens to the rest of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd be curious to see why it is people do that because my own family sometimes is guilty of that where they'll go and they're like oh this one doesn't look right i'm like well, you realize that this cucumber is enormous and it's perfectly fine but they just don't put it there because it doesn't look like the rest of them so why do you think that is um, I think people place value on perception once again we like that perfect apple that perfect mm -hmm. strawberry um, you know, the reality is when we grow things, things aren't always going to be perfect. So, um, how do you deal with that? I mean, number twos are fine based on if you're processing it, you know, mm -hmm. if you're going to eat it uh, fresh from the hand, possibly you might think that it's better, but you know, the flavor is the flavor. I mean, mm -hmm. if, uh, you know, an aesthetically looking tomato, uh, coming from the same plant as a tomato that's gently deformed, isn't going to taste any different. It's the same plant. Um, but there, you know, there's probably a business side to this as well, right? Of course. Um, you know, we could charge certain dollars, uh, for something that looks pretty. Um, you know, the other sad part is that we throw most of what we we say in terms of our food budget up to about 40% away over mm -hmm. the course of a year. Um, so we're overbuying. Uh, we're probably putting a level of importance on things that aren't as important as they should be. Um, you know, if you need two tomatoes, don't buy four. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that has an environmental impact, obviously. But, um, I mean, to understand where our food comes from and to know how we use the food we're purchasing is, is really, really important. Awesome. Uh, sorry, I, I, we're, we're getting close to the end here, but uh, this cup I want to coffee's really good, by the way. Thank you. I want to sneak in a few little uh, few things. So talk a lot about food because that's I'm assuming how most people know you. But I want to I'm curious, do you have any maybe not so so much that you're trying to keep them secret, but hobbies that people don't know about? Yeah, sure. Passion um, project. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I love music. Uh, play the piano. Uh, classically trained. Awesome. But but uh, you know, wish I could still ride my Ducati, but I'm getting a little bit beyond the scope of that powerful <laughs> machine. Uh, but uh, you know, I I, uh, uh, I love life. You know, mm. I live it to the max whenever I can, and and uh, the opportunity to to uh, share what I've learned from my teachers to the next generation is really really important. So. Uh, and I very much appreciate you doing that because. It's precisely what I'm trying to do with with this podcast, right, is, is showcase people, uh, not that it's easy, but that it's simple, right? Mm -hmm. Anything that you want in life, you can have hypothetically. It's just a matter of how much you're willing to put into it. And, um, you know, I, I'm definitely in the snowflake generation, but definitely no snowflake myself. Yeah. My dad, again, same thing, Italian background. There was no chance in hell that I was going to get off easy being an ass or, you know, embarrassing the family or anything like that. Right. And uh, when I was a little kid, I used to 
you know, I used to get mad and say to my dad, like, why, why can't I go out on the weekend? Why can't I, you know, like, why am I working all summer? You know, why do I have to work Christmas Eve? And I used to hate it. And then, you know, here I am 21 when I open and now 25 turning 26 pretty soon. And I think my life is so easy and I have so many things to show for the very little work that I actually have done in order to get to this point, all because perceivably what I do now is easy because of how hard I thought I had it before, yeah. right? So I, I think there's so much merit to obviously what your story was and, and my background thinking, if you just work a little bit hard, yeah. think about how much of your life is spent enjoying the benefits of your hard work compared to how much was actually hard work. Right. You know, you even if it was five years you spent in Europe getting your ass beat, you know, you've spent the past, you know, couple decades at least loving it and, and working, not saying that there weren't tough moments or challenges, but I mean, how much more have you been able to enjoy because you worked a little bit hard when you could? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd also say, Lucas, that my testament will be the amount of people that I've trained mm -hmm. uh, that are now very uh, successful in operating local businesses. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that's my hallmark. That's my my uh, my pride and joy. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what I wish to celebrate. And you're one of them. So I very much appreciate that. Well, listen, I think this is probably the best way to end it off. I could do this for three hours. But uh, anyway, you guys have heard one of my favorite podcasts we've done so far with Mark Bacconi. Again, I've can't say enough good things about him. Uh, if you want to learn anything, check out his website. Is there somewhere else they can find you? Maybe you can give that to him. <coughs> Chefmarkbacconi.com. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you guys next week on Above the Mug. Thanks. Hey, friend. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Above the Mug. For more episodes, check us out at AboveTheMug.com. Make sure to like, share, subscribe, review, comment, tag your friends. This way you're not the only person listening to this thing. We come up with a brand new podcast every Sunday at noon, so we'll see you next week on Above the Mug.